Hi, my name is Philip Bourne, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 63 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. This week, I speak to Philip Bourne, who has combined his love of tennis with a PhD. We talk about his PhD, essential servant patterns, improving your practice sessions, second serve speed, and more. Before we get started, a huge shout out to our podcast sponsor, Slinger. If you need to know any info on the Slinger bag, you can send me a DM at the Functional Tennis Instagram account or email me at ace at functionaltennis.com. I'll be happy to help out now that I've used the Slinger bag for over a month. Okay, let's get chatting to Philip. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hi, Fabio. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. It's great to, great to have you on the show. We actually met, was about, I think about three or four years ago over in Cologne because we have a mutual friend. Yes, that's true. Fabian. Fabian is like yourself, a scholar, a man who yeah, chases a PhD. Yeah, tell me, you've worked, obviously worked writing a lot of papers, you have a PhD in tennis. Tell me, how did you get into, how did you mix tennis and a PhD? Well, I am a tennis player all my life. Um, basically, all our family is a tennis family. My parents both studied here at the Sports University in Cologne um, and then became tennis coaches. My father even uh, was the national or one of the national coaches here in Germany for over 30 years. So I was born into tennis and when then I finished my, yeah, well, master's degree or then it was a diploma in sports science here at the Sports University. Um, yeah, like everybody after the university, I uh, had a look around uh, what is what is there for me in the world. And um, then one of my professors came up to me, Professor Karl Weber. He came up to me and he wanted to do one more big scientific project before he uh, finishes his uh, career. Yeah, and that's how I got uh, to do my PhD. And then we started to think, what are topics that are new in tennis that are maybe not yet researched enough? And um, yeah, well, the game opening was uh, one of the factors that we decided we, we should do research on. And yeah, that's how I um, got started with my PhD back in 2011. And with all the work I've done besides that, or better to say I did the PhD beside my full-time work as a coach. Um, yeah, it took me almost six years to, uh, to finish it. But um, yeah, that's how I got into PhD in tennis. It must be great come from such a, a tennis enthusiastic family and having your dad as one of the national coaches must, must have helped you as a player. Definitely it did. Yeah, it was also tough sometimes because, uh, yeah, the father-son relationship is always different than a coach-player uh, relationship. It's always special. But now looking back, yeah, I was really lucky. I have two brothers as well, one, one brother two years older. So we, that's the next thing that helped me a lot was that I always had a better and older practice partner. Um, and then we have a younger brother, nine years younger than me. So we are, yeah, basically we all learned our tennis from our parents, like from the first steps from our mom. And then uh, my dad took over uh, with other coaches, but uh, he was and still is, uh, yeah, my my best and uh, yeah, my best coach I ever had. And uh, I'm still still playing with him from time to time, even now. He's, he's probably still beaten you, is he? Uh, not anymore, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but maybe again in this future, we don't know. 
And tell me, and your two other brothers play as well. They do. They both uh, play college tennis in the US. My older brother played quite successful. He was uh, number one in doubles together with Andreas Siljeström. Um, they won the NCAA championship um, against Kevin Anderson and his partner back then. So he was very successful. He's still um, living and working in the US uh, as an athletic director at Lamar um, University. And my younger brother, he's now, he just finished his master's degree and he wanted to, um, yeah, to start on the pro tour this year. But uh, as we all know, the coronavirus uh, had something against it. So he's, yeah, he's practicing and pre preparing to hopefully start in 2021 to, yeah, to start and um, try his luck on the um, ITF and ATP tour. Uh, nice. And tell me, we posted a video on Instagram this week that you tagged us in with uh, Dreddy. Was that your younger brother or was that you? No, yeah, that was my younger brother, Yannick. Yeah, um, okay. the one I just talked about. Uh, yeah, and he's he's playing with, with Dustin and, and a team. He played some doubles uh, in the first Bundesliga last year. And uh, last Sunday, they played in our second team together. So um, yeah, so they practice a lot. And this video was from uh, last year. It was uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable uh, rally in the in the dribbler, how we call the game. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, that, that video actually killed it. So yeah. it was a really good video. But I remember watching, obviously, Rot Weiss. Is that how you pronounce your club? Yes. Yeah. It's the, the colors red and white. Yeah. Rot Weiss Köln. Yeah. Rot Weiss Köln. Yeah. Like, obviously, Dreddy was playing. I'm not sure if Seppi played that day. Well, I watched. I know Fognini was on your team at one stage, wasn't he? He was, but uh, unfortunately, he never played. He was in the roster, okay. I think, for two years, but never played. But Andreas Seppi, I, I heard the episode with him uh, that you had. I, I really liked it. He was, uh, yeah, he was here a lot of times. He played uh, a lot of times. Very nice guy, great player. And um, yeah, unfortunately, as he also said, he's struggling a lot with his hip lately. So um, sometimes he just had to, yeah, he had to skip the, the club matches because he had to give himself a break. But uh, yeah, Andreas, uh, we have Benoit Pair in our team, which is always great player and great to watch. Also a great guy. We have Dreddy. So we have a interesting team also for the, for the spectators to watch. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Like, I didn't know much about German League more until recently, the past few years, but the quality of players is unbelievable. And for people who don't know, like, what goes on in these European leagues, like, it's amazing the players that show up and their yeah. ATP 500 matches going on there. Yeah, sometimes you have, yeah, sometimes you have uh, great, uh, great matchups, yeah. Let's move on to the PhD, the, the meat of the, the meat of the interview. Tell us, what was your doctorate in? The topic was the game opening in men's professional tennis. I, my PhD is the PhD in sports science. So that is what I, the, the study of the university is sports science. And I, but yeah, the topic was game opening in tennis. And what I basically did was uh, to get statistics uh, from the French Open and the US Open. So we chose clay court and hard court because we said, okay, that's, these are the two main surfaces that are played on in Germany, but also worldwide. Um, and all in all, I had almost 25,000 strokes that I analyzed via um, videos that we had from, from the Grand Slam tournaments. And we focused uh, basically on the first four strokes. So first uh, serve, return, and then first stroke of the serving player, first stroke of the returning player to get a detailed look uh, into what they are doing. Where do they serve? Uh, where do they hit the next shot to? To which zones of the court? So we divided the whole court into uh, 14 
different zones that are really easy to adapt on the practice court. There was one thing that we um, wanted to do that we did a scientific research, but very um, close to the day-to-day training of all the coaches. And one thing that was like the novelty of the of the PhD was that we um, developed serving patterns. So we we defined, like you said in the beginning, for example, the big V, which is a serve that goes wide. So you move the opponent out of the court, um, the return comes back to you, and you play your first shot or the third shot of the um, of the rally to the open corner. So um, the big V to uh, get a get a picture of it uh, is that if you draw an arrow for your serve and for your next shot, those two arrows will uh, form uh, the letter V. And then, yeah, from then on, uh, from there on, we defined several serving patterns. Uh, and yeah, well, that was the topic and um, was, was and still is very, very interesting to see what happens on the court. So what was the final outcome? What was the most important thing that you learned from the study? Oh, if I have to pick one, that's tough. But um, regarding the serving pattern, it, it was that there are basically three to four serving patterns, which are no uh, revolution. But it's one thing was that it's that simple. So for example, the big V or the second most played one, the small V. So you serve to the T. The opponent goes to the middle of the court and you're still playing to the free corner, for example. So you have basically easy and not very special serving patterns. But the most important thing is that um, how you play the patterns. Um, you have to play it with a certain certain quality in the serve, but also in the uh, following stroke. And one thing that was really new and still is new, I had, uh, for example, yesterday I did uh, my education part in the, in the trainer's education, coach's education here in Germany uh, for the A courses. And uh, we talked about that is uh, a specific zone. I call it the C zone. So the letter C, uh, which is like behind the service line close to the sideline. Um, and these zones are the most played zones. So, so the first stroke after the serve, if you go to one or the other corner, um, this is the zone where the um, male professional players end. Now in our newer research as well, we found out that also the women players do the same. Um, they play their first strokes and all offensive strokes as well, like aggressive strokes from within the baseline or approach shots. They play to these zones a lot and not only a lot, but also very successful. Maybe I'll get you to send me through an image of the court broken up into 14 zones and I can include it in the show notes just so people have a better understanding of all these zones. Yeah, I definitely will. Yeah, yeah. Great. And so you talk about the big V, the small V. What are the other one or two popular patterns? Well, the next one is uh, the, we call it the behind the back. So you serve wide and you play behind the back. So the opponent has to move uh, to the center of the court to cover the court and you play behind the back, um, which is actually one of the most successful ones because it's for the serving player a lot of times easier to play your next shot back to where it came from instead of changing the direction of the ball, which you have to do in the big V. So these three are the most played and the most successful ones. It differs a little bit from the due side and the advantage side, but that's like the next... Yeah, the next step to 
to individualize it, you know? So a big V, let's say 30 all, would could be me. I'm a right-hander playing mm-hmm. a right-hander. I slice out wide. Yes. And then I come in, I get a mid-court ball back and I go inside out to the other to his backhand side. Is that an example of the big V? That's the big V, exactly. And um, like you just described, is one of the um, next things that we found out in the, in the men's tennis, actually not in the women's tennis, but men's tennis is that, as you said, a lot of third strokes are played with the forehand. Even if the opponent returned to my backhand side, more than 35% of all strokes that go to the backhand are still played with the forehand. So the runaround forehand is uh, one main thing in men's tennis as well. This is actually one main difference to women's as well, because women tend to do it a lot less. So we have only 10% run around forehands, for example, in the women's tennis. Okay. It can be nice though, if, the, if you do get a backhand, a return down the line, you can use your body weight to, especially a double-handed backhand to get a bit of angle. That's true. To open up the court even more. That can be nice. But I'm sure a lot of this, this would be a very trained drill as well. Like pros, you've worked with pros. How often do they train these patterns? Is this all they do? Uh, actually, that's very different. Um, that's very individual. There are some players uh, that train it a lot. Actually, or my brother posted a video from um, from the Australian Open last uh, this year, uh, where he watched Kevin Anderson, and he did a, a whole uh, session on it. Serve next shot, serve next shot, and even only the next shot. So he just uh, he did like a simulation serve, not serving, maybe to to uh, to get a little bit of rest to his shoulder, but train the next shot. So um, there are some players, for example, the big serving players that practice that a lot, but there are also some players that seem to um, not practice it a lot. But my um, yeah, what I see and when I talk to uh, colleagues that are still um, on the on the ATP and WTA tour is that it gets more and more that uh, the focus is more and more on the game opening. Yeah, that they really try to um, get individual patterns for their players to see, okay, what is the strength of my player? Does he, like you said before, have a, has a very good uh, slice serve maybe from the juice side? What can we build on that? Or next step to, to think about... Uh, what is the return I want to get back? So uh, maybe it's not even so much about the serving direction, but it's more about if I serve there, where does the ball come back to? And then, as you said, do I want to have my backhand or do I want to play forehand with the first shot? That's the next thing you um, you see in the in the practice sessions. And question, let's say, let's look at it from the other side. I'm playing a lefty. Rafa Nadal, extreme example, who uses that play all the time, especially when he's under pressure. He always, he's, he's advantage down. He plays the, the lefty serve, slice out wide, and he follows in with a forehand uh, inside out. How do you deal with somebody who's using the V against you successfully? Well, that's the thing. If, if the player, like you said, Nadal, is playing it successfully, it's, it's tough. To do anything against it um, and that's the most important thing for the serving player that i always emphasize that is if you have a really good working serving pattern use it and it's it's tough if you i well i never played against rafa uh, obviously but uh, i can only imagine how it is to to return his slice serve and we all know wherever i put my return he still tries to go with his forehand so one of the best answers would be try to get your return back deep into the middle, which is 
when we talk about return patterns is one major thing that uh, is very obvious in men's and women's tennis is that more than 70% of all the returns are played deep through the middle. So we try to get back to the feet of the serving player. And this is what, this is all you can do. And then after that, it's, uh, yeah, you have to see what the, what the serving player is doing with your return. Too many times, the more amateur players like myself prefer to go for the big returns and the risky returns. And meanwhile, the pros, as you say, are hitting 70% of returns deep down the middle, cutting off all angles, you know, it's a nice secure shot. So I think a lot of us should be looking at work and practicing on these returns that, you know, we just get them back down the deep middle and set up our next point with it. Exactly. Yesterday, for example, with the coaching course, I said, if I, if we, with our junior players, practice only two things with the return, First, put it in, 80-90% of the returns in and 70 or more percent deep through the middle. Like that's your goal. If it's, if it's going a little bit more cross-court and a little bit more down the line, okay. But your goal is to go deep through the center of the court. If you train this, you, have a, you do a big step forward in your return game. And then um, you will give the, the serving player as many follows, follow-up strokes as possible. So there will be less easy points for the serving player. He, he or she always has to do more to win his or her um, serving game. So um, this is a, would be a big step um, in all the return quality. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Even when you see, I know we're going to do extreme examples of Fedra, Vavrinka, when they're blocking it back with their backhand and it's just landing a foot inside the baseline, no pace, and the server's like completely neutralized the server. It is an unbelievable return to have. Yeah. Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers, and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalog of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. That's it. Just coming back on your serving patterns, are they based off first serve only or are they second serve also? It's both first and second serve. They differ a little bit regarding the the serving um, direction. So if you want to do it very, or if you want to do it very easily or easy, it's uh, you could say that serving first serves, it's wide or T and only more or less 10% to the body of the opponent. When serving the second serve, it's almost 60% to the backhand of the player, 30% to the body and only 10% to the forehand. So this is what uh, is, the, is the main difference with the first and second serves. And yeah, depending on that, the, the follow-up stroke um, is still the same. So you, you still have, you go to the open corner or behind the back and that's, often uh, depends on the quality of the return. So um, let's say like this, if the, if the return is good, with a good quality, um, deep, with a good pace, the players tend to play the ball back to where it came from. So again, what you said before, less errors, less risk, um, play the high percentage ball. And if they have the time, if they can build up their stands, if they can um, choose what they do, they tend to to go to the open corner to make the opponent move. And it's as simply uh, as simple as that. It's most of the time a choice between two things, not like three or four things. But the, yeah, 
the quality of the player is uh, that he or she is most of the time making the right decision and not, like you, you said before, go for the big shot that goes to the line. And if it's in, it's, it's huge, but it's like in two out of 10. Um, so yeah, the, the high percentage is, is very important. And obviously, as you say, minimize change in direction of the ball. When you change direction, you know, it's always a bit risky, isn't it? The footwork has to be it is. much better. And I, have you seen Riley Opelka serve this week? I don't think he's following your stats there. He's just going for the body first serves. He's absolutely nailing people with his first serve. Well, that's a that's a good thing to do as well. You know, it's uh, and that's what we have to keep in mind when we now talk about the stats or if I talk about the stats, it's like a big... Uh, the big picture. So we had 25,000 strokes. We have like 40 players in it. Um, but on the individual level, it could be very different. So you always have, I still remember Stan Wawrinka when he won uh, Roland Garros, uh, he was serving to the body a lot as well. So you always have like the individual level when you play against a certain player or you have a certain player who is more able to do this or that. So what we focus on in our research is, first of all, get the big picture to get yeah useful useful numbers useful stats for um the coaches and the players and then a great coach um is able to adapt those stats of the pros to the individual level of um of the players he's working with you know true and that's one of the reasons why I'm a bit anti against all these online courses that are available at the moment I feel that, you know, tennis is such a personalized game. Everybody's different, no matter what the level. We all have different skills and different abilities and and there's too many online courses which just cater for, you know, there's no real personalization there. It is, yeah. And anyway, it's just something I thought I'd bring up. But briefly, we were talking about second serves. I was asking about the patterns, but I heard you mention on Ad, Adam mm -hmm. Bilcher's podcast about the second serve speed, which I thought was interesting and something that I've actually been trying to work on recently. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about your thoughts on the second serve. I have to go back some years in my own um, playing career. One of my coaches, uh, or when I changed clubs here to Cologne, um, my new coach, Torben Tyner, he worked with me and he said, okay, you got such a great first serve. But what's up with your second serve? It's like uh, your second serve is a lot weaker, a lot uh, slower. So it's like even if there's a like there's a another player serving. Um, so we worked on that, and his, his input was, and that is something um, that worked for me. And since then, that's like ten years ago, maybe I'm working with this philosophy with all my players, and uh, it really helped a lot of players. Is that why should you hit a second serve slower than a first serve? There's no reason for it. Why? Because you need a certain pace in your racket to control the ball. So if you hit it too hard, you will lose control, but you have a certain pace. And if you go under that, um, if you go slower, you will lose uh, control. So if you want to hit a good, consistent and as well efficient second serve, you should use the same racket speed than you use on your first serve with the one difference that you don't hit the ball flat, but with more slice or kick. So you do, um, you just use your, your wrist or your underarm uh, movement a lot more to make the ball rotate and use the pace to control the ball, to make it more efficient, to make it 
tougher for the opponent to return. And, and this is one of the main reasons for me as well with, with junior players, doesn't matter if male or female, um, that they have one service motion that they can use and they can continue to use and get uh, a lot of repetitions on. What I see a lot is that they tend to have like three different service motions. The one is the first serve, the second one is the slice second and the kick second serve. But why should they defer so much? So my philosophy is to um, hit the second serve 90% of the movement, same as the first serve and just defer in the spin you give to the ball. With the only uh, exception that for very high bouncing kick serve, you need to um, change the the toss a little bit. But even if you toss it always on the same spot, like for example, I think Roger Federer is doing great, is that you can still hit a very good kick serve. Maybe you not get a such a high bounce, but you still can um, can hit a very very good second serve with that. And plus your opponent will struggle a lot yes. more to know where your serve's going, which gives you such an advantage. Obviously, that's much better than an extra 10 miles an hour. The player doesn't know where you're going. Anybody listening, give that a go in your next practice session. I think it really works and it just changes your thoughts on the serve completely because obviously it's not a flat serve you're hitting. You're, still, you're going to hit a second serve with more spin or more slice. and But it, it gives you an extra bit of confidence and you actually get a bit more from the serve. I thought it was great. But also for juniors, like you work with juniors, what's important for juniors out there? We have a few listeners, junior listeners, and what can we tell them from your experience that's important for when they're training? Regarding the serve or? Just in general. Well, in general, it's uh, one thing I, I always try to teach my players and also if I do coaches education to try to teach the coaches is that if you have players that are competing in any way, could be a regional tournament or club games or national tournaments or going for pro, whatever it is, as soon as they are competing, even if they are still playing on the red court, the game opening, so serve, return and the first strokes should be one main focus in the practice. On the technical side, on the movement side, so all the footwork that is involved, starting with the footwork within the serve and after the serve and also tactically because, and this is something we now with all the stats we have, including all the stuff that Greg O'Shaughnessy is doing, we know that no matter which level of play, uh, which, which age group, the first four strokes are 70 or more percent of the rallies. And that's the most important thing. And if we focus on that more, um, we will get the players from an early stage on to be more successful and more, like you said before, um, more confident in the situation. So they don't struggle with the serve and the second serve, they don't struggle with returning and everything. I think most of the time that happens because most of the training sessions are baseline, focuses on the baseline, focuses on hitting strokes, getting a lot of intensity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we do a little bit of serving and maybe returning, but maybe not uh, in junior uh, junior practices. So yeah, I am definitely um, would suggest that they play more with surf, focus more on the surf uh, in every um, in every way. Points to 10. How about we go out and pay, play some points to 10 yeah. or points to 11 off the ground? I know some players who are great off points to 10 or 11 and then once you put in the serve, it completely changes things around. True. So I, I agree. I think there's too much time spent on those points to 10, points to 11. And I think as you've mentioned this before, it's more that's more of a fitness. You do tennis for fitness. You're not actually doing it to win matches, to become a better player. And like hitting cross courts all day will, won't 
help you that much. I mean, you sometimes need a bit of feel, I think, and you'll do it. But I think doing it all the time, I think is wrong. Yeah, well, it's um, it's perfectly fine if you do it, you know, but um, it always depends on what your goal is in tennis. I think tennis is also a great sport. If you do it not uh, competitively and play it just for fun, for fitness, whatever, those people, they don't have to focus on serve and return and everything. But as I said, as soon as you play matches and this is one or the main focus uh, in your tennis, you have to do it. And you have to also do this uh, the rest of the um, strokes. So I, I don't say don't play cross-court rallies, but I say if you have a certain amount of time, if you have a 90-minute uh, session, you should give the most important things more time and enough time. So if you have 90 minutes session, um, 30 minutes should be about the game opening, at least. If it's closer to the next competition, maybe more. But uh, yeah, that's the most important thing. And next thing is not only more time and more focus, but also the placement in the... I don't know if placement is the right word, but the placement in the training structure. So not why always do serve and return at the end where everybody is already tired, a little bit less focused and everything. Why don't do it at the first thing in the practice. You do a good warm-up, you're warmed up. Before you start hitting baseline strokes, we do serve, we do return, we do the first strokes. That's our first 20 to 30 minutes after warm-up. And then we start hitting from the baseline. So we have our main focus on the main thing that is the most important thing for winning matches. And then we still have 60 minutes uh, or maybe 50 minutes for um, all the rest of the um, yeah, strokes we also need. I agree with you. It's it's only looking at it from my side. It's actually a hard thing to change when you've done something for years. You've these routines built into you mentally and people you play with have these routines as well. And it just takes a bit of effort to break out of it and bring something new to the table and say, we're going to switch things around today and move, keeping that structure moving forward. But I agree. We used to have a fitness coach and he used to say, let's do the speed work at the start after you've properly warmed up where you have a lot of energy. And when you're quick, you're quick rather than doing it at the end when you're fatigued and you're trying to be quick, but you can't be quick because you're tired. And so I think it's a bit the same philosophy as that. But Philip, I'm going to end this on just a question. One of your papers is on video analysis. Just briefly tell us a bit on the importance of video analysis for players now. Yeah, well, that's one one of the other main research topics we are on uh, here at the Sports University. Besides all the game opening and stats, we do a lot of uh, research um, with 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 video, the use of video analysis in practice, and um, also the use for the players, for the coaches. And um, well, first of all, uh, the first message is now we have such an easy access to great tools. You, everybody has a smartphone. Almost everybody has a tablet in any sort of way. And most of the uh, devices have very good cameras. So you can use it very, very easily um, on court. When I remember only 10 years ago, when I was still studying, we had a, like a big camera that took the video. Then we had to take the camera into the, um, into the classroom, put a cable from the camera to the TV, and then we could watch it, you know? Now we have a smartphone or the tablet. We take it out of the pocket, we take a video of our player, we have it with a very good quality. And if we add 
certain uh, apps on it, like Huddle Technique or Coach's Eye or Tennis Australia Technique app or whatever it is, we can we can make it even better regarding the slow motion, the to to hold one picture of the movement, uh, to do like two movements uh, side by side, to um, make a comparison between two players or whatever it is. So that's the main message should be use what what we have in your practice and yeah be aware that your eye um, or your eyes can't see everything that is happening in tennis we have such short and also um, fast movements especially the movements that are happening right before we hit the ball right before the contact point uh, an experienced coach sees okay there's something wrong something is off with the movement with the with the hitting with the wrist whatever it is but we can't really see it so um we use the video analysis to just break it down to get a better look for the coach so the coach like gets a yeah better view on the movement to help uh, with his uh corrections for the players and the second thing which is yeah which i can highly recommend is let the players see themselves Whoever it is, younger players, older players, experienced players, a lot of times it's like a, a really eye-opening moment for the player to see his movement. And from there on, the work between coach and player will be a lot easier. An example would be if, if you're my player and I, I told you for the last several weeks that I want you to get your racket head more under the ball just before you hit it and you don't get it. You you know what I mean, but you don't know how to do it. You think, okay, I'm already doing it. My coach is still on me. What is what's up? So and then you see it, and what you never saw before because you don't watch your record and you can't watch your record while you're hitting yourself. But you see it on the video. You see it in slow motion. You see what I mean. I tell you, okay, look, that's what you're doing. I want you to have your record here or there. Maybe you compare it with Rafa Nadal, who is doing it great, uh, or whatever. And um, it would be most of the time a eye-opening moment for the player and from there on your efficiency in coaching will be a, a lot better and a lot easier. I agree the, the whole visual learning thing is massive and you can learn so much more and as you say once players see it it's a lot clearer and can help a lot but yeah no thank you very much Philip for all that information and I'm sure there's loads for the parent listeners or the coaches or players here that go out and work on can work on today straight away so I thank you a lot for all that information and keep up the good work tell me where can we learn more about you well first of all thanks for having me I always uh, appreciate um, the work people like you do and um, that's very important to get to get all the information we have out there. Um, that's why I'm, I, I was really happy to do the, the podcast. And then, as you said, already the, the one with Adam and for, for us researchers, it's, it's very important to get all our, like, yeah, all the research, all the knowledge out to, yeah, to the players, to the coaches. And I think that's, that's a great way, uh, with, with your podcast as well. Well, learn more about me. Um, check maybe, um, ResearchGate. That would be the, um, the scientific, um, Facebook, <laughs> what you would say, uh, where, where you will find a lot of papers. I'm still publishing a lot, uh, here in Germany, but also, uh, worldwide, um, go to conferences. If you, uh, if you're a coach, uh, I highly recommend, uh, the ITF coaches conferences, for example, as soon as all the COVID situation is, is better, there will be even more conferences, I hope, uh, which is always a great input. I will be there a lot of times to present 
And um, besides my professional uh, level, we have our family. Uh, we talked about that earlier. Um, we have Born Coaching on Instagram, which is more like a private uh, thing. But we try to yeah, give a little input uh, from time to time from our daily practice um, as players, as coaches. So if you're on Instagram, it's at Born Coaching. Yeah. And you maybe get a little bit of insight in, in what we do. Thank you. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed the episode and picked up some great ideas that you can bring straight away onto the practice court. If you want to see what the court looks like split into 13 zones or want links to the video apps that Philip mentioned, head over to functionaltennis.com slash podcast and we'll have all the information in Philip's podcast episode notes. I'll be back next week. Until then, I hope you get busy working on your second serve. Bye.